This episode of Into the Wild is sponsored by Leica Sport Optics. It's well known and proven that connecting with wildlife and nature can improve your overall well-being. So why would you not want to turn it up a notch by getting to see things even closer and clearer with a set of binoculars? It's what I have done and I've not looked back. I can't recommend enough checking out the range of optics that Leica have to offer. A great range of kit with superb optics and they even have payment plans if you don't have the cash up front. I wouldn't shout about a company on the show that I haven't used or been impressed by and it's important to me that companies we are partnered with have the same values as Into the Wild, which is why I'm proud to give them five thumbs up. If you want to check out more of Leica's range then visit their website that can be found in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Into the Wild. I'm your host Ryan Dalton. Thanks as always for clicking on that play button. Hello everyone. Um, sorry, started that like a proper cockney. Hello everyone. Welcome to Into the Wild. <laughs> Hello. How are you doing? <laughs> Lovely uh, to be talking into the microphone through all the way into your ears on another Monday or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, whatever day of the week you are listening to this. But welcome to Into the Wild, the podcast all about wildlife, nature, and conservation. I hope you've all had a lovely week. It's been great seeing all the nature stuff you guys have been getting up to on our weekly nature highlight over on Instagram. God, I can't talk. What is wrong with me? Over on Instagram. If you don't get involved, by by the way, come over every Sunday. We share our nature highlights, see what we're all been getting up to. There's a lot of bird action, so, you know, I mean, I guess don't rush over, but... (laughs) But it's cool to see. Thanks for all being in, uh, involved in that. It's lovely to see everything that you're all getting up to. And spring is on its way. I can practically smell and taste it. It is beautiful. Blue skies, 10 degrees. I'm st- I want to see more. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, come on, stop teasing me. I want spring. Give me some flowers. <laughs> getting so excited. Right, let's move on to 60 second nature news. Let's get some positivity because we still need it. Here are th- Four positive nature stories from around the world. Deep breath. Let's go. Derby in the UK introduces eco-friendly bus shelters. The city council are planning to add 45 living roofs on their new bus shelters. Mixed with native wildflowers, please, 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 please be perennials, otherwise there's going to be a lot of work, that will be perfect for insects. The Portuguese Nature and Conservation Institute have announced that 70 Iberian lynx were born in the wild in Portugal's Vale do Guadiana region in 2021. Populations were at around 200 left in the wild, so this jump is huge for the species. The cubs that were born were born to 24 different mothers, representing an increase of 10 births and 6 reproducing females compared to 2020. Morocco's Prime Minister Aziz Akanouche has committed in expanding the country's marine protected areas and doubling the resources the country currently expends annually in its fight against illegal and unreported and unregulated fishing. And finally, the critically endangered diving petrel population is on the up. The population is currently at 210, which is a modest increase, but an increase nonetheless. And that's the end of 60 Second Nature News. Woo, there we go. Some some positivity from around the world, from nature there, which is always good to hear. Now let's move on to today's show. This week, I am talking to RSPB site manager up at the RSPB site in Horsewater in the Lake District, Lee Schofield. Lee was actually the first person I've actually, I've met, met in person and then had on the show. That has never happened. 
It's always been the other way round. Email first, tweet first, and then chat, and then maybe one day meet. So this was a lovely way round to do things. I'd actually spent a couple of days up in the Lake District a few weeks ago, back in February, meeting with Lee and some of the RSPB team up in the Lake District to go around the site at Hawes Water to see Swindale Farm and their other sites and what they're doing there. It was a fantastic trip and it was a brilliant opportunity to get to ask Lee questions when I was with him about his new book called Wildfell, which is absolutely brilliant. It's available online now and I get the link is in the write-up of this buy, so please, please go on there and buy it. It's a brilliant book. So I was lucky enough to get the chance to chat to Lee whilst I was with him and even luckier to get to do an episode with him as well where I got to ask some more in-depth questions about the site, what they're doing, what they're hoping to bring back. But interestingly, and this is what I loved about Lee's book, is that it dived into kind of the conflict of what happens when you've got so many close-knit neighbours who have been farming on the Lake District, you know, for generations. And then an organisation like the RSPB comes along and tries to do some new things. Uh, it was really insightful, um, really open and honest from Lee as well. And there's, you know, there's not many people out there, like Lee says in this show, that is in his position and are writing about it as well. So it's super interesting. So here we go. This week's episode is Farming in the Lake District with Lee Schofield. Lee, lovely to have you here on Into the Wild and good to kind of see you again. I think you're the first guest I've had on the show that I've actually met in real life first. What and privilege. then been on the show. <laughs> yeah, It's quite nice to have it that way around, to be honest. Um, yeah, how yeah. are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. No worries. Absolute pleasure. How's the storm been? Where you've been? Has it been manageable? Uh, it was a bit wild last night. We A uh, big hole in the roof was was there in a place that we didn't really want it when we woke up this morning. But um, yeah, it's getting patched up as I speak. So yeah, all right. <laughs> I love that. Not where we wanted it. It's like, where would you like a hole in the roof? <laughs> well, <laughs> The chimneys are okay, but apart I guess from the that, chimney, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's a pleasure to have you on, mate. Um, and for people that are listening, like, just to say that we are recording this just after the storm, and just after I've got back from visiting Lee um, in the Lake District, um, what, about ten days ago now, probably. Which I had an awesome trip, so it's a pleasure to be able to get to talk to you. So, for people that are listening, Lee, do you want to start by telling us who you are and what is it you do? Uh, yeah, so I'm Lee Schofield. I'm the senior site manager at RSPB Horswater. Um, and I'm still kind of getting used to saying this um, uh, because I am I am also an author, apparently. Um, so I've got a, I've got a book called um, Wild Fell, which is which is published this Thursday. Um, so, yeah, I will probably become more comfortable saying that over time, I guess. <laughs> Do you, is, it, is it a weird feeling to say it? It is really weird. It's really weird. I mean, partly partly because I never really ever anticipated, you know, becoming a writer. I never particularly had any any aspiration to be one. Mm. Um, so yeah, the whole the whole book business is all a bit of a all a bit of a surprise to me. A very welcome surprise, but a surprise nonetheless. I think it's very refreshing because I've spoken to a lot of authors. Aside from the podcast, this is not relaying to anyone particular that's been on the podcast at all. I must say that. But I've spoken to a lot of authors, and I think you're the most modest one. <laughs> <laughs> it's very refreshing. People are usually like, my book's great. And you're like, hey, I wrote some stuff down. Give it a read. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's yeah, it has really taken me by surprise. And I think it's just I've come to 
I've come to realize over the course of the the time that I've been working at Horsewater over the last nine years, um, mm. you know, just how many interesting stories there were, both associated yeah. with the sort of the history of the place and its wildlife. And I, I guess sort of started to realize that I'm I'm kind of part of that story now, really. So, you know, the book is the book is the the, the sort of the ecology, the change that we're trying to do, but it's also, you know, it's also my place in that and you know what it means to be working in a place like Horsewater and and you know, trying to breathe life back into it. I think that was the most for me as I've gone through the book that's one of the bits I love the most was you explaining how your journey through all this has been like not just the changes that are being made but how you've been like you know because some of the early chapters when you talk about some of the meetings you had to go to are really quite like you really show how I guess challenging they were for you and I'm I really I guess it sounds horrible to say I enjoyed reading that bit but what I mean is I enjoyed the personal kind of um commentary on on what that was like yeah and i i felt that there weren't that story wasn't really i couldn't recall that story having been told really from Mm. from my particular perspective before so you know i I read a lot i read a lot of nature writing you know books like feral wilding you know have been a big a big sort of inspiration for the work that we're doing and and i suppose for the writing as well um yeah but you know, well, actually, it is Isabella Tree, I suppose, you know, she is she is a practitioner, she's doing, but the vast majority of nature books are written by people who are who are external observers, you know, but somebody yeah. kind of actually working at that coal face of conservation in the way that I do. I, I couldn't I just couldn't really recall having ever read anything like that. Um and that was that was one of the drivers for for wanting to write this because you know we are put in some quite unpleasant challenging situations sometimes and although my book is you know I'm only talking about my own personal perspective I've got lots of friends and colleagues who've who've had really unpleasant um yeah they found themselves in very sticky situations that have been really very unpleasant and you know I'm sure have taken a major toll on them and I wanted that to be recognized really yeah and it it certainly has and it's 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 been an interesting like read to go through some of that because there's a lot of things that you don't really I guess kind of like you said hear about or even think about in in the kind of industry um before we get more onto the book I guess I should ask you this question is you've grown up with the natural world you've grown up with wildlife on your doorstep but what is your favorite thing about the natural world that's a good question so i really like i really like seeing the associations between things i think so i'm perhaps a little bit atypical for somebody who works for the rspb in that the idea of going and finding a bird a very rare bird for all its sort of beauty <laughs> and and the excitement of seeing it i always i always feel a bit sorry for a for a, for a rare vagrant bird really because it's essentially a bit lost and a bit knackered you know um and often they probably don't have very good outcomes you know at the end of the day after people have taken lots of photos of them so so i'm much more mm. interested seeing the sort of the the right bird in the right place or the you know the right the right insect in the right place feeding on the, the the plant species that it's got a long evolutionary relationship with um and seeing all of those kind of connections between species and being able to kind of you know visualize those sort of food webs and those those intimate relationships that's 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 what i find really exciting about nature that's cool i like that i like that answer like seeing the things just work because that is the best part yeah. isn't it when you go and see it's all just working and being as it should be yeah, and often, you know, so often when we look around the British countryside, you know, we're not seeing things working as they're supposed to. You know, we're seeing habitats that are missing key species, whether they be mm. plants or animals or, you know, whether whether those are those are wolves or beavers or, um, you know, uh, 
downy willow scrub growing at sort of high altitudes yeah. in 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 the fells there's there are there are holes all the way through our ecosystem um so when you go to a place where everything is sort of intact and fun- functioning as it should do then that's that's a pretty amazing feeling it is indeed and let's move on to your role at RSPB Horswater so how long have you been managing this site? I think you said, was it nine years did you say you've been managing there now? Yeah, I've been there for nine years. Um, so we took on the tenancy of these two farms, Nadal and Swindale, mm. uh, just about 10 years ago now. So I, I took over sort of a year into those tenancies. So RSPB has been in the area, been at Horsewater for, for a much longer period of time than that. So we came, um, the RSPB arrived in uh, sort of about 1969 when Golden Eagles first returned to breed in, in England. So they'd been absent for 170 years and they turned up again in 1969 thanks to a population that was growing in southern Scotland. And there there for a brief period, there were two pairs, but the, the pair that, that established the, the most solidly and sort of became England's only golden eagle pair for, for quite a long period of time settled at Horsewater. And so, you know, pretty momentous occasion. Um, so the RSPB sort of word into action and set up a nest protection scheme just to give them the best possible chance of success. Yeah. And over the over the course of the decades, we started, um, you know, we opened up a viewpoint eventually, you know, as as with the sort of the Osprey story initially, everything was keep everything really quiet, keep it all hush hush, slowly <laughs> recognising that, you know, there's an advantage to kind of building support for these species and um, yeah, you know, showing them to people so so we had a fairly low-key um sort of visitor operation with with a with an eagle hut which is now just a kind of fairly lonely shed on the fell side and yeah sort of started building this relationship with united utilities who were the landowner of the whole catchment around horsewater reservoir so they own about ten thousand hectares and we started doing bits of tree planting around the reservoir edge we set up a tree nursery always really hankering after a, a sort of more significant land management operation and in 2011 and 12 two tenancies were, were came up and we we had the opportunity to take those over so so we've got about 750 hectares of enclosed land uh, which have got some big chunks of common land associated with them so altogether we're looking after sort of roughly 3000 hectares so about a third of the catchment and it's a partnership with United Utilities. So we are rent paying tenants of theirs, but we're also partners. So everything we're doing on the catchment is is in accordance with the management plan that we've we've sort of developed with them. And basically everything we're doing is about trying to improve the land for, for water, for wildlife and for people. You mentioned there about a section of the land being common land. And I remember reading this in your book because this is one of the things that I learned massively is, is the definition of common land or how it's changed over the years. Um, how How does this work in the UK? So common land is land that's owned by one person or organisation, but over which others have certain rights. So going a really long way back, basically all the land was common <laughs> land. Um, and slowly they were sort of as, as land was enclosed and the ownership of land became more commonplace. The sort of the worst bits of the bigger states were sort of referred to as the manorial wastes. Um, and they were places that the, the lords of the manor would would allow the commoners to do certain things. So they could they could cut mm. firewood when when they used to be trees. Obviously some commons have got trees, but most of the ones in the Lake District don't really anymore. Um, they could cut turf, they could fish, they could graze their pigs on acorns. Um, so there were a whole range of, of these sort of customary rights. And over mm. time, they became attached to specific properties. So our two farms, Nadal and Swindale, we have a list of prescribed common rights that we can exercise on our associated commons. And now in the commons of the Lake District, so the Lake District has the greatest sort of concentration of commons anywhere in England, I think. You know, most of the big mountains are, are are commons. The only right that's really worth exercising now is is grazing rights. And since the vast majority of farming in the Lake District is 
sheep farming. Um, most of those rights are exercised as, as sheep grazing rights. Uh, so yeah, we've got several, we've got rights to graze several thousand sheep up on three of the commons around Horswater. Um, we don't graze anything like that many. Most people don't exercise up to their maximum rights anymore in order to try to improve the, the, the sort of the environmental quality of them. Yeah, I'm looking forward to asking you more about that later on because that, that was quite an interesting thing to to learn why as well. And so your role at the RSPB, like how did you get into that role? Because it is it's quite a it's a big job. It's nothing you just fall into, is it? Uh, no, I mean I think nature conservation as a career generally isn't something that people fall into. You do have to be you have to be pretty committed. You have to work quite hard for for typically for not very much money. Um so uh, <laughs> so I had a I did a I did a degree, degree in zoology. I then did a master's in ecological management. I did lots of volunteering with the National Trust before I managed to secure, um, you know, short term contracts with a range of, of wildlife trusts and other small charities. Mm. Um, and I was working for Cumbria Wildlife Trust. So we moved up to Cumbria to be closer to my wife's family. That's she's 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 from this part of the world. And the job at Horsewater came up, and uh, yeah, it was a permanent contract. So I thought, well, that looks that looks great. I'll uh, I'll give that a go. And I probably didn't really realise quite what a controversial job it was going to be when I took it on. So I'd been looking after nature yeah. reserves for wildlife trusts beforehand. And although the land at Horsewater was big, I thought, well, you know, it's like one big site rather than a whole bunch of little nature reserves, which is what I'd been what I'd been managing previously. And I, I didn't really appreciate the sort of the the controversy of a big organization like the RSPB suddenly coming into a landscape that had been you know, really the, the sort of sole preserve of, of sort of small family farms for a really long time. And that, yeah, that kicked up quite a few stink in different quarters, a bit of, bit of a stink in different quarters. So, yeah, I mean, I would definitely recommend anybody putting in the graft to, 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 to get a career in conservation. It is a fantastically rewarding career to get, but it does take a fair amount of commitment and dedication and, and time spent volunteering to get in there, which is, you know, which is difficult and it's not something everybody can do. So, I guess I, I, I want to talk about this because this is we spoke about it in person and I've read about it in your book and you've just mentioned it there. So you talk about your role and how the work of the RSPB is seen by other landowners, specifically in Horsewater in the Lake District. How hard was that when you went into the job to actually face? Yeah, it was it was pretty hard and it got going quite quickly, actually. So one of the challenging things about common land, one of the most challenging things about common land is the fact that there aren't boundaries between one common and the next or yeah. between people's kind of traditional grazing areas and the, and the adjacent one. So if one person on a common decides, well, I want to graze a little bit less intensively, I want to plant trees, uh, I want to you know re restore the environment, then you have a knock-on impact on all of your neighbours. You basically just create a bit of a grazing vacuum, more grass grows, the sheep on the neighbouring areas, then just they, they just stray in and they eat your grass instead, basically. So one of the sort of the initial concerns was, well, if we're going to change things then that's going to sort of destabilize the the sort of the hefting system which is this 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 sort of um this method of grazing sheep on the fells that relies on sheep knowing their own traditional areas rather than rather than grazing in line with fences and that's a, that was a justifiable concern from people you know they 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 knew that one of the things we did want to do was restore the habitats on these places and and one of the ways to do that is to reduce the grazing intensity so we had to be really really careful about that and and, and not just go in and do what we wanted straight away because it would have it would have you know it wouldn't have been neighborly it would have caused problems for lots yeah. of other people yeah that's fair um so the other probably more fundamental concern was just that we were not 
that we didn't really have the right to be where we were, you know, that we were not traditional, authentic, in inverted commas, farmers. And and therefore, you know, we, we, we shouldn't really we didn't really deserve to be where we were to be do what, doing what we were doing. And there, there was quite, a, you know, that was expressed in a whole range of different ways. You know, we had meetings with the neighbouring estate. We had the MP criticising us for, for for changing the way that we were doing things. We didn't have that much criticism directly from farmers, but farming representative organisations um, were, were quite critical of us in, in newsletters and in a whole range of different meetings. And I think probably one of the main underlying drivers for that was was that they didn't really know where it was going to be going so it was it was a mm. kind of a fear of change and it was a fear of change that they didn't that, that we hadn't really had the opportunity to communicate you know we weren't planning on just removing all the farming you know initially <laughs> for the first few years our plan was to really understand how the farming worked that was why we took the tenancies on it was to run a hill farm for ourselves to understand where the opportunities lay but we obviously hadn't done a good enough job of communicating that to people and 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 so sort of chinese whispers circulated and everybody assumed that we were going to remove all the sheep disrupt the hefting and that we were mm. going to somehow cast doubt on the the value of hill farming by doing something differently so yeah it was quite it was quite rough and a lot of it was directed at me quite personally because i was the, the site manager i was the kind of visible representative of the place and yeah i mean you know i, I make it fairly clear in the book it, it really affected my mental health it felt felt like everybody was ganged up against us um mm. and yeah i know that a lot of people working in conservation probably suffer suffer similarly do you find it's got better now how's the relationships with the neighboring landowners or the, or the people on neighboring land so it's really variable. You know, there's still definitely people who don't like the fact that we're there very much. But I think what I the mistake I made early on was not 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 reaching out to people, not not kind of getting to know yeah. our neighbours and just retreating into my shell a little bit in the face of of some criticism that we'd received and therefore just deciding that the whole farming community was one great big amorphous block and they all felt exactly <laughs> the same. And of course they didn't, you know. The farming yeah. community, like any other community, is made up of people with very diverse views of, of, of the world. So I think the thing that helped me most was really to pluck up the courage to get out and, and meet people and, and meet the the farmers that were doing things differently that that you know that were doing things that that were actually quite aligned to us and i think the benefit of them realizing that perhaps we weren't quite the bogeyman that they thought we were um <laughs> and also getting to see how much great stuff they were doing too was was really positive so that that's just helped to put everything in perspective really and i you know kick myself for not having done that sooner respect for doing that though because that's not an easy thing to do i mean day to day you have people in different industries everywhere but if we're looking at wildlife and conservation and and, and nature and stuff you know that's talking to people that even you feel may have different views to you is not an easy thing to do especially with when your job role is what it is so no. i mean I, i've got a lot of respect for you going to do that <laughs> And I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not a naturally confident person. You know, I'm, I'm quite, I'm quite introverted. I think probably quite a lot of people that work in nature conservation are quite introverted and focused, <laughs> yeah. focused on things that aren't going to talk back to them and stuff. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was really hard, but almost universally, every single time I went to meet somebody and actually spent the time with them, even people who still don't agree with 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 what we're doing actually it was yeah. just always a lot easier than i thought it was going to be that i you know it was a lot easier than i built it up to be in my in my head beforehand so so yeah it can be hard to kind of get the ice broken but it, yeah definitely reaped massive benefits i think the vast majority of the time not many people out there enjoy conflict like no. introvert or extrovert no one really likes conflict there no. are some people that like a 
to poke the fire. But so I think once you do go and talk to some people or like, you know, immerse yourself in the opposite side or even in the middle, middle way, nine times out of 10, they see you're a person and you just have a chat. Definitely. I'd imagine. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's it. I mean, you can, no matter how much you disagree with somebody about farming, the farmers up here and the conservationists that work up here, we all love the landscape. We've chosen to be here because yeah. the place kind of speaks to us, you know, that we feel mm. stirred by the views of the mountains or whatever. And we might have different views about how those mountains should be managed or left to do their own thing. But, you know, there's a, there's an awful lot more that we've got in common than there is that divides us almost across the board, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, Let's kind of get the listeners up to scratch with how, I mean, this is probably going to be a big question for you, but how land is managed. Let's look at the Lake District specifically, but traditionally in the Lake District, how has land been managed through history and how has it been used? After last ice age, uh, you know, it was broadly wooded. Neolithic people started clearing woodlands and, and sort of creating patterns of settled um, agriculture sort of six, seven thousand years ago. And, and it was during that period that the, the vast bulk of the woodlands disappeared. And, you know, small plots were hacked out of those woodlands and, and, and grazing animals were brought over. So that's around about that time is when sheep arrived in the UK as well, sort of 6,000 or so years ago. And domesticated cattle and ponies were used and, you know, pigs. And, and up until a couple of hundred years ago, most farms that, that were the sort of evolution of those early settlements were very, very mixed. So if you lived in a remote place like the Lake District, you basically had to make the land work for you in order to survive. You wanted, if you wanted to have a varied diet, you had to to grow the things that gave you that varied diet, right? So <laughs> so you had sheep and pigs and geese and chickens, and you probably grew a bit of fairly probably small sour apples um, and, and, and damsons, which are a sort of local variation of a of, of a sort of a plum species, a pruner species, turnips and potatoes. You know, there's not there's not a huge range of things that are going to grow up here because it's wet and it's cold and the soils are pretty poor. Um, mm. But there would have been a much broader range of things that were being grown up here because you didn't have the option of getting them in from anywhere else so you know it would have been sort of arable crops and things as well and then the, the sort of a really big change happened after the second world war when subsidies were introduced to basically try to safeguard food security because of concerns that if another war were to break out we'd be very vulnerable and the subsidies that were designed they sort of they they sort of kicked in in the lowlands first in the more productive areas but they they soon enough reached the uplands and and because the uplands is only really that suited to growing a sort of more limited range of things one of the the subsidies that was introduced was um something called they were they were, they were headage payments basically so they were payments okay. to farmers to increase the numbers of livestock that they were carrying because sheep have young every year they can have twins or triplets sometimes it's it was much easier to grow the numbers of sheep than it was the other types of livestock. So cattle mm -hmm. numbers started to reduce in the hills anyway, and sheep numbers increased. And the, a huge number of farms basically just 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 had sheep. They just dropped all the other stuff because that was where the most money could be made through these subsidies. And so the sheep numbers massively increased. So between 1905 and 1950, there was on average around about a million sheep and lambs in Cumbria. Between wow. 1950 and 1990, that number increased to 2.6 million. And that was Jesus. that was largely down to those subsidies driving that massive increase. And since 
that sort of peak. Um, so in 2000, there was the foot and mouth crisis, which, which, which crashed the numbers a bit. And there was also the introduction of stewardship schemes, which are targeted at, at paying farmers to um, you know, improve the natural environment. And that drove the numbers down a little bit. But the, the numbers have sort of settled out around about 2 million, probably a little bit lower. So we're still almost double that um, 1905 to 1950 average. But because this has all been playing out over a really long period of time, most farmers, they can't remember that that how things worked before those headage payments kicked in. So they can yeah. remember the, the drop in numbers since sort of 2000. And a lot I hear it quite regularly, actually, from farmers saying, you know, we've, we've reduced as far as we can go. If we go any further than that, then the whole system is going to break down. And it's like, well, how did folk make it work up until 1950? Because they did, you know, and one of the ways mm. they probably made it work was that the farms were smaller and that there was a lot more cheap labour available. So things have changed. You know, it's not as easy to say we made it work then you can make it work now. You know, there yeah, are fun fundamental underlying issues that, that, that make it really difficult to return to that kind of system. But when that sort of level of farming intensity was operating up until 1950, the sort of relationship between farming and nature was a much more benign one um you know since those headage payments have kicked in we've lost black grouse from the landscape we've lost mm -hmm. corn crakes the reason we've lost corn crakes is because we've lost nearly all of our hay meadows because all of those technological advantages the fertilizers the big heavy tractors the cutting machines allowed you to to, to grow two or, or three crops of grass in a year rather than just one you know, hay meadows have just 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 gone. They've just been replaced by silage fields almost everywhere. And the corn crakes which yeah. relied on breeding in those hay meadows, they've gone too. So so there's been massive collateral damage. But again, it's happened quite slowly. So people's baseline has just been kind of slowly shifting and they've not really recognized, you know, what's been lost. And so I've tried to I've tried to to you know paint that picture of, of how much we've lost and, and and why and you know how we might go about getting some of that back in the book. I guess that brings us on to the changes that you and your team want to make. I mean, I saw some of these when I was up there at the site and it's quite exciting stuff. So what are the changes that you have and would like to bring in to Horsewater for the future? So a lot of it is about trying to reinstate that sort of traditional farming model. So, you know, a lot of people describe what we're doing as rewilding. Mm -hmm. And and some of it does certainly fit into that box. So, you know, we've restored um, the meanders to a, a stretch of the Swindale Beck, which is basically restoring the river's natural processes. And you could comfortably call that rewilding, but that restored river is flowing through a traditional hay meadow, which is absolutely not rewilding. You know, that is very <laughs> much a managed landscape that we mm -hmm. cut for hay every year to feed to our livestock mm. but it's a system of of sort of farm management that really benefits wildlife you know species rich hay meadows are one of the richest habitats in the in the temperate world so you know we're not doing all of one thing or the other you know we're trying to find a balance that respects the sort of the the, the cultural heritage the traditional management approaches alongside ones which are more hands-off and, and letting nature do the heavy lifting so so i mean one of the biggest changes and i guess one of the perhaps most controversial changes is that we've taken sheep off a, a big chunk of one of our commons so we managed to secure a fence on that common last year which is quite an undertaking on common land you need secretary of state permission to put a fence um, on a common and that allowed us to change the grazing on about 950 hectares of that common wow so the sheep have come off that 950 hectare area altogether and 
we've replaced them with a small herd of hardy belted Galloway cattle, which are ad- adorable, by the way. <laughs> they are adorable. Yeah, they look like <laughs> they look like giant hairy licorice all sorts. Um, they are. They are. I mean, yeah, they look adorable, but like you don't want to get on the wrong side of them. They can. Um, they can be quite. Oh big. god, no, they were big as well. Yeah, yeah. Big, big and big and hairy, adorable looking, but yeah, need to be treated with respect. Um, and you know, the reason for having cattle instead of sheep, and I, I think this is this is quite an important point that maybe folk miss people might think that well grazing is grazing and you know it's eating this animals eating stuff there's a really massive difference between the way different species graze and, and the really fundamental one affecting us is that sheep are not a native species to the uk they don't have a native ancestor and so all of the native wildlife the plant life in particular hasn't evolved alongside them so mm. We do have native ancestors of cattle and we do have native ancestors of ponies and of pigs. And obviously the deer are still here as well. And all of those plants that, that, that we see in our countryside have lived alongside those animals for as long as they've been around, basically. So they've evolved ways to, 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 to coexist with each other. They've, you know, they've evolved yeah. ways to survive that, the, that kind of grazing. And the way that sheep graze is very, very selective. So they, they've got much smaller mouths than cattle and ponies do, and they can just put their mouths down and they can pick out a nice sweet little tree sapling here or a, you know a nice flower over there and they can ignore all the stuff that they don't like so much so all the really coarse really unpalatable grasses they can they can just ignore those and therefore over time those coarse unpalatable species have just dominated and that is what most of the lake district fells are are, are covered with is, is coarse mm. unpalatable species generally species that don't have a flower that offers up pollen and, and nectar to an invertebrate so although it's a very kind of subtle slow transition that sort of dominance by sheep is is probably one of the most significant factors driving the state of of plant communities in in the uh, in the lake district in the uplands in the uplands generally by shifting away from sheep and putting cattle back on there who rip at vegetation um, and they take that coarse, unpalatable stuff, as well as the, the the sweet stuff as well, of course. They're just grabbing whatever is there. You diversify the vegetation. You knock back the coarse stuff. Their heavy hoof prints open up slots in the vegetation so that seeds can kind of fall in and get an opportunity to, to, to get going again. Over time, re-establishing that sort of naturalistic grazing regime, which is which is more similar to the one that the, the wildlife evolved alongside should uh well will because you know we've seen we've seen examples of this all over the country and elsewhere will improve the quality of the habitat up there and once you've got a more diverse vegetation structure and, and composition then you've got more invertebrates once you've got more invertebrates then you've got more birds and, and onwards up the food chain and a big focus of the book for the big focus of what we're doing at horsewater is about that focus on flowers and that i think we don't generally yeah. give them the attention that they really need there was the, the was it chapter two in your book about flowers that was almost like that I don't know is uh, is addiction the right word when I was reading through it, it was just because uh, I was googling every although the illustrations in the book are beautiful and I really like them because they're quite timely with nature writing I think as well it goes up back to that tradition of like sketches of the flower before photos were a thing but what I liked about it is you list so many that as I was reading I was like I've got to google these I've got to know what they look like each every single one so am I right in saying with the removal or it, certainly making less sheep on the land is there a chance that these flowers are going to spread from... Because you talk about the alpine wildflowers. Is there a chance that then they're going to start moving down the hills more as well? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the most important sites for for, for wildlife at Horsewater is um, on the, the crags at Harter Fell. So this is the big, uh, you know, very imposing crag that you that greets you when you park at the, the end of the reservoir at Mardell Head. And on those crags are just the most spectacular 
array of, of plants um you know mm. alpine meadows basically but that are growing vertically because that's the only place that they've been wow. able to survive the depredations of the sheep and, and the deer too and we've recently uh well four years ago we put up a big fenced plot immediately below the crag and just by taking out the sheep and the deer grazing from that area we're seeing those plants just just tumble off the crag so rose root devil's bit scabious lesser meadow rue alpine sawwort globe flower a uh, huge diversity of ferns um you know just That's just amazing. just a really incredibly long list of plant species that are, that are growing up on these crags are just having the opportunity to, to recolonize that ground below and that's where they want to be you know they're not they're not adapted mm. to grow on cliff ledges it's just it's just that's the only place they've managed to cling on in that particular area we haven't got any grazing at all and in some parts of it it is becoming quite rank you know it's becoming quite grassy and and in if you don't graze at all the grasses can sort of close up the sward and and, and over time crowd out the flowers but mm. there are also some plant communities that really just they, they really benefit from not having any grazing at all. And that's particularly the case at sort of higher altitudes or where the slope is quite steep or where the soils are quite thin. You know, it's really difficult in a, in a very heterogeneous sort of complex habitat. You can't manage just for one particular plant community yeah. you just have to say well you know that we're going to manage for, for that one and everything else is just going to kind of have to take its chances really so most you know most of the site is grazed in some way or other but there are some places that aren't grazed at all and and that's going to give us a broader range of different conditions and a broader range of different habitats over time and that's what it's all about you know it's all diversity of management leads to diversity of habitats which leads to diversity of species it was interesting when i was up there to see because you pointed out some areas where you had fenced off from grazing and literally you can look from left to right and see this epic difference of woodland and even the way the trees are growing or what the trees have growing around them to the other side of not nothing but like you said not diverse (laughs) in the same way it's it's quite powerful when you can see an image like that isn't it yeah definitely and you know we use a lot of fencing at horsewater and and we, Mm. we would rather not be but when we only have you know, 3,000 hectares feels feels quite big, but it's also very small. You know, it's mm. like it's not big enough to give us the sort of the natural dynamism in the landscape that would be producing conditions that we would be able to just not worry about all of those habitats and that we would have the species rich grassland just by accident because a river has has kind of stripped a load of turf and, and created a load of really sort of low nutrient conditions for a while. So we, we kind of have to simulate those natural processes and yeah. provide that variety through manual means. And yeah, fencing and grazing are are the tools that we sort of have to use in those places. And you know, we are trying to reduce the numbers of fences wherever we can. So where we've got the option for having sort of cattle grazing over a really large area, we'll be taking fences down but in some places we're gonna we're gonna have to keep them up and that's just life in nature conservation in the uk really (laughs) and i guess because that was going to be one of my questions is how do you manage grazing species both wild and domestic so obviously you can use fences and stuff but i remember you telling us when we were there about the new way of managing your cattle herds and stuff with the collars which is quite forward thinking these are an amazing new innovation that, that quite a few people are using now actually um particularly sort of big rewilding projects and things so our cattle wear these gps fencing collars um, they're made by a company called no fence that, that's based out of norway and they've been using them in norway for, yeah it's, they've always been they're always ahead of us i think in norway basically they're um they're a solar powered 
GPS unit that's slung around a, a chain on the neck of the cattle. And on a on a an app on my phone, I can I can draw a set of coordinates. So I can draw a virtual field. And those coordinates are, are sent to the cattle's collar via GPS. And when the cow approaches the edge of that virtual field that I've drawn, initially it gets a sonic deterrent. So it hears a beep, it hears a more insistent beep when it gets a little bit closer. And then when it finally hits that virtual boundary, it gets an electric shock through the chain. And the cattle they're smart creatures cattle so they they learn very very quickly that the beep means an electric shock is coming and i've been up and and watched them while they've been sort of roaming around in this you know invisible field and as soon as they hear the beep they turn around immediately and they head back into Amazing. the field again um and you can see on the app uh, how many shocks and how many warnings they've had over time. And on the first day, they're all getting loads of electric shocks while they, while they figure out. The next day, some of them get some electric shocks. And by the third day, hardly any of them are getting electric shocks at all. And so there's some people who are a bit concerned about this, that, um, you know, there's a welfare issue here. The, the sort of the strength of the shock is, is pretty much the same as you get if you touch a, a standard actual electric fence. So it, mm. it hurts, it's unpleasant, but, you know, you, there's no lasting negative impact from it. There's also people who say, well, you know, at least with an electric fence, the cattle can see, they can see the fence is there. Mm. And it's not fair that there's this invisible thing that they can't detect. But actually cattle rely on their hearing almost as much as they do their sight. They are basically learning where these fences are with sound because that's where they're getting these sonic deterrents for the fences. So it's, you know, yeah. we, we think of it as being cruel because we're a very visual species. Cattle using their 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 ears that much more, it's not really that dissimilar to, to learn where it is by sound as to where it is by sight. So yeah, there's lots of people using them. They are pretty transformative. The cost associated with it compared to putting up physical fencing to do the same sort of job would, you know, it's it's a it's a massive saving to use these fences. And you get the flexibility. So we can move the cattle around. We can simulate how cattle would, you know, be roving over a, a, a landscape during the course of the year, you know, probably avoiding the tops in the winter, but perhaps going up there a bit more in the summer. So again, we're, we're, we're having to use technology in the same way that we're using the fences, but it's all about trying to simulate how those animals would have behaved in a wilder landscape a long time ago. And when we're talking about like controlling grazers, you know, again, both wild and domestic, um, something we hear quite a lot is, you know, Instead of all this control land management, why can't we just hand it back over to nature? Nature will sort it out. Don't worry, nature finds a way. But I guess, you know, what you talk about a lot is is saying, well, that's not entirely true due to the fact that our ecosystems are so out of balance. You know, you can't yeah. hand back an out of balance ecosystem back to nature because it will find a way, but it's not necessarily going to be the way that benefits. So what's your response to people when they kind of say things like that? So it's as you said, really, <laughs> the, the, the ecosystem is out of balance. It's missing like fundamental cogs that that make it work. Mm. And without them, the thing is just kind of limping along in a weird, disjointed way. Um, so I think we need, we just need to be pragmatic. So yes, rewilding, just letting nature do its own thing will benefit some species, undoubtedly, but we will probably also lose others. So it's trying mm. to find that right balance. I think, you know, the higher up the hill you go, the steeper the ground, the less you need to intervene um, in more productive landscapes that have been sort of twisted by applications of, of fertilizer over long periods of time. You know, they've, they've, they've or, you know, the seed source has just gone because it's been burnt over and over again. You know, you've got to intervene in order to get that, that, 
that those natural processes operating again. Or, you know, I believe that we have to intervene. Other people believe differently. And, and you know, one of the points I tried to make in the book is that although we are a, a fairly small, fairly crowded island, there is room for rewilding and there's room for conservation management and there's room for farming. And, and actually we can be we can be pragmatic about that. We can we can put infrastructure in places that allow those two different approaches to operate next door to each other or, you know, in a much more sort of intimate mosaic as we're doing within our farms. Um, so yeah, it, we need to get away from sort of binary thinking that that it's that it's rewilding yeah. or something else. It, it, you know, there's lots of scope for and. What was the name of the plant that I'm sorry to bring this up? Maybe this is your nemesis. But what was the name of the plant that you haven't found on the site? That, <laughs> you're smiling already. <laughs> uh, yeah, What's purple, the name of it? purple saxifrage is is indeed my, my botanical nemesis. Um, yeah, and you haven't found it yet. I haven't found it yet. No, we've got. I've got a date with some guys from the um, from the Alpine Club who are coming out in the uh, middle of March to to have a look for it. So it's it's a really early flowering species, um, mm. and when it's not in flower, it's it looks quite a lot like um, wild thyme, which is which is mm. quite common, and it grows in sort of very remote, craggy places ordinarily. Um, and yeah, it was recorded as being at Horswater in like 1970 or something and nobody's seen it since and the only <laughs> reference that we've got for it is like within a one kilometer square somewhere so it's on a crag somewhere within the quarry of, of Blee Water and it's yeah <laughs> it's like it's going to be there somewhere and one of these days we'll find yeah, it yeah I can't wait I'm, I'm buzzing I'm watching your Twitter now like <laughs> confidently that soon you're going to be like found it the suspense yeah, yeah, yeah. the suspense is yeah. thrilling <laughs> so what's next for um, what's next for RSPB Horsewater over the last couple of years we've made some really big changes so that that shift away from sheep to, to cattle just put in a new tree nursery we've got new uh, new member of, of, of staff helping us with the with the farm helping to run the farm and, and the, the focus there is going to be setting up a sort of much more regenerative farming model so mm. so we are still going to keep sheep but we're going to just be having them on the in-by ground so it's going to be a fairly small flock of sheep yeah. moving them around much more regularly to benefit soil health and, and you know see see what we can do with the sheep as well because you know they mm. are a big part of the Lake District's cultural landscape. Mm -hmm. There are always going to be sheep in the Lake District, whether we like it or not. So to try to work out a model that uses very few inputs, benefits the soil, still provides some kind of livestock produce, but in a in a really sustainable way is, is, is something that we're really keen to have a shot at. But really, it's about seeing the habitat starting to develop now. We've still got a pretty big challenge in terms of deer. There are too many deer in the landscape that are suppressing the regeneration of woodland so we need to, to to work with united utilities who who have the deer management responsibility to to get their numbers down to a more sustainable level as well and then then it's letting the habitats express themselves really and helping it along here and there planting more trees planting more wild, wildflowers but hopefully getting the conditions set so that we'll start to see the wildlife flourishing by itself and and, and spreading out more and more there's always going to be lots to do we've got aspirations for a few reintroductions we're really keen to get beavers on site they're in an enclosed area just sort of a few miles down the valley from us we think that they would have tremendous benefits to both sort of reducing flood risk and improving the quality of the water in a few places on site so yeah there's lots of work to do there to consult the local community to make sure that they're up for that as well but yeah there's lots to do lots to keep me busy until, <laughs> until i retire <laughs> <laughs> um, and the last question for you, Liz, if you could pass on one bit of advice onto everyone on the planet regarding the natural world, what would it be? I think it's be tolerant of other perspectives um, and recognise that there are a huge range of different viewpoints out there and they all have 
pros and cons and you know try to work within that kind of messy middle ground that accommodates that broad range of points of view is going to be the way forward amazing lee thank you so much for being on the show it's been a pleasure to have you on pleasure to meet you and it's been super fun reading your book which as this is being aired is already out so people need to go buy it (laughs) that would be great yes please (laughs) Um, thanks so much for being on the show mate Um, and all the best for the rest of the year thanks man speak to you again Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the projects and work Lee is working on, then you can do so, of course, on social media. His tags are in the write-up of this episode. Also, you can follow us on social media at Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to get in touch about Into the Wild or ask any questions or suggest any ideas for some episodes, you can email me at intothewildpod at gmail.com. A quick note to say that all the opinions and expressions expressed in today's episode belong to the person that said them and do not represent those opinions held by Into the Wild or anyone that we work with or are affiliated with. If you would like a shout out on the show or to be put into a draw to win a free Into the Wild podcast mug, yes please, then all you have to do is review the show on iTunes or Spotify or both and send me a screen grab, take part in our weekly nature highlight share every Sunday on Instagram, or you can tip Into the Wild via our Ko-fi link in the write-up of this episode. Of course, you can do all three of those things and increase your chance of winning the monthly mug. Until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.